This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Murder Was the Case is a free-form, conversational podcast which makes educated speculations about criminal cases and human psychology based upon the information we have reviewed. The show is intended to entertain and educate our listeners with regard to criminal psychology and behavior. At no point should the content of Murder Was the Case, whether spoken by a host or guest, be misconstrued as a formal professional opinion or diagnosis, nor as a wholly accurate or complete account of any case. Any person discussed as a suspect or potential suspect is innocent unless a court of law determines otherwise. If you dig Murder Was the Case on Glassbox Media, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MurderWTCase or on TikTok at MWTC Podcast. You are listening to Murder Was the Case, exploring the darkest, most perverse, and bestial crimes known to man on Glassbox Media. It has been more than two years since the death of George Floyd, widespread rioting, and the emergence of calls to defund the police. With COVID lockdowns behind us, there is no better time to have Raphael Manguel of the Manhattan Institute back in the dive bar to look at how crime in America, and specifically New York City, has changed in its wake. This episode focuses on criminal justice system policies and statistics, so if you showed up looking for blood and guts, you might want to give it a pass. But if you're seriously interested in how progressive reforms and COVID have affected crime rates, you won't want to miss it. Join patreon.com slash murder was the case this month to hear the bloody awards ceremony, the final episodes in Murder in Noir, and our ongoing series on cults. I look forward to having you with us for another year. Everyone, please welcome back to Murder Was the Case, Rafael Manguel. He is the fellow and head of research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute. He's been on the show before, The Criminal Cycle, and he has a new book out, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. So Rafael, welcome back. I just want to ask you what it felt like. I know, but what it felt like for you to finally get the box of books come to your door. It was pretty special. It was pretty special. If you would have asked me 10, 15 years ago, if I was ever going to be a published author, I probably would have laughed at you. It was a bit strange, but also incredibly special and gratifying. I mean, yeah, I put a lot of work into this book. It was a kind of multi-year process if you count the idea stage and then actual writing and outlining and then getting an agent and then a publisher. It was a really long process. And then even after the book was written, there's you know so much time that passes between turning in your manuscript and then actually having the book get printed out. And so it was pretty special. I'm very glad to have been able to do it. And the hope is, is that the book changes the dialogue a bit. It affects our conversation and helps open people up to the kind of views that I express in the book. So is it an academic book or is it more directed at the public? I know it's going to be full of ideas and it's going to be a serious work because that's yeah. the kind of guy you are. That's what you do. But is it something the general public can digest or is it someone studying in a criminology program? Is it for them? Yeah, it was certainly written for a general audience. That was really important to me. I didn't want to write a book that was just going to be read by criminologists and sociologists and people who were kind of already in the field. Basically, the way I saw it was, you know, our national debate, you know, here in the US and and really just the the kind of debate more broadly, even outside the US, is characterized by a set of narratives. And those narratives are very compelling 
to regular people who vote accordingly, who are sort of passive when it comes to evaluating proposals for criminal justice policy shifts that are quite substantial and meaningful in their likely effect, but don't get a lot of pushback from the general public and their representatives by virtue of the fact that people have just kind of bought into these really well-crafted and thoroughly researched narratives. I think it's important to take the other side seriously here. And that's what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to explain what the holes were in the dominant narratives about criminal justice in the United States. And even more broadly than that, the idea that we have a kind of mass incarceration problem that our criminal justice system, which is actually a phrase that many people won't even use anymore. They use criminal really? legal system or wow. criminal penal system. Because it's um, unjust. Is that right? The idea being that justice has kind of been eradicated from all corners of traditional law enforcement. And, and that kind of inspired the title of the book, Criminal Injustice, right? The idea was to kind of have the argument on the terms of the reformers to say that, yeah, there are critiques of the criminal justice system. I just think that they're different from the ones that you are bringing to attention. And so this idea that we have to pursue justice through decarceration, through depolicing, I wanted to explain why that was misguided, why the narratives informing that policy agenda were wrong, where the holes were. And ironically, kind of how the downside risk associated with these popular policy proposals actually fell disproportionately onto the shoulders of the very communities that reformers say they want to help. That was kind of the idea behind the whole book. And in many ways, it kind of wrote itself. It was somewhat therapeutic for me to write it, but also I think it largely achieves what I hoped it would. And that was to kind of get people who were not already committed to the ideological push for decarceration to sort of second guess some of these broad claims that inform what are, in my opinion, really misguided policy agendas. I spoke with you in 2020. It seems like it was yesterday, but in the words of Bob Seger, it was long ago. And I also spoke with John Wright that year. You were the two people I spoke to about broader criminology and policy. And probably the two most influential talks. I've certainly never been in the decarceration camp. I've always been, I don't know, I guess people just characterize it as being to the right now. Sure, whatever. I'm no longer resisting it. But I didn't have the nuance of the arguments. I hadn't heard all of the parts of that side properly. And after speaking with you and John, it changed me. Uh, Some other things as well. But I really have to thank you for that. I feel a lot wiser having had that conversation with you. Well, that's an incredibly high compliment, especially to be mentioned alongside John, whose work I've long admired. In fact, he and I, along with Matt DeLisi, who's another really brilliant criminologist, co-authored a, a paper that was published to the Manhattan Institute earlier this year, and that was a real treat. It's a paper I cite in the book as well. So yeah, that really means a lot. And that's exactly what the goal is, right? I mean, people who are reasonable, people who are in the center, who maybe have some underlying skepticism, but don't know how to articulate it don't know you know, quite how to put their finger on it, or maybe people who have come to believe that the dominant critique of the criminal justice system is right, but are open to reason and argumentation. And, and so this book is really crafted to do exactly that. And so it really is the highest compliment that you could give me to say that I helped you think through some of these things. And, and hopefully other people who've read the book and you know have heard me speak in other venues will feel the same way. So the book, once again, is Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Deep Leasing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most by Raphael. Manguel. I'm going to pick up a copy. I want to go to kind of where we left off last time. So I made some notes before we got on here. By uh, mid-2020, crime was going up all over the USA, but particularly in like New York, Chicago. In New York, you said shootings were up 70 to 80%. 97% actually in 2020. Wow. Okay. So Yeah, almost doubly. Okay. And then shootings up 200% in East Harlem, Brownsville, Brooklyn, 
those areas. I mean, that's awful. And so what I want to do is I want to catch up. Where are we now? Well, let's let's look at the microcosm of New York specifically. In New York, uh, murders and shootings have somewhat leveled off a bit. I mean, for the first time in New York's history, at least in its recorded history, we had four straight years of increases in homicides and shootings. So you know, we had our, our low point of homicides in 2017, where we dropped below 300 for the first time. We had 292 homicides. There was a very slight uptick to 295 in 2018, a slightly bigger uptick in 2019 to a little over 300, I think it was like 319, and then a 47% spike in homicides in New York City in 2020, which was the single largest one-year spike in New York City's recorded history, which makes sense because nationally that year, the United States saw the single largest spike in homicides in its recorded history, which was 30% across the country. But in 2020, we also saw shootings double, you know, 97% increase in shootings across the city. And so 2021, we saw upticks again in both of those measures, albeit smaller than what we saw in 2020. And now in 2022, it looks like we're going to end the year with homicides and shootings, both down slightly somewhere in the range of 10% for the year. Now, some people are pointing to the decline in homicides and shootings for 2022 and saying, well, this is clear evidence that what we saw in 2020 and 2021 was really just a blip and let's not get our socks in a bunch and start repealing some of these criminal justice reforms that have been enacted in New York City and state over the last several years. And you know, to that, I say, well, it's important to understand that from 1967 to 1990, which was kind of the period of New York's somewhat steady crime rise, New York City never had four straight years of homicides homicide increases, even during that time frame, where we wow. went from 600 and change or so homicides a year, all the way up to over 2000 homicides a year in, in the early 1990s. And so the idea that we have one year of a relatively small decrease that still doesn't come anywhere close to you know our pre-2020 levels, that that should be a cause for celebration. I, I'm not quite sure I buy into that, especially given the fact that other crime categories are up a ton in New York. So New York City is looking like it's going to end the year with a 25% overall increase in part one offenses. These are the seven index felonies that New York City tracks as kind of indicators of broader crime trends. And that's despite the decrease in homicides of about you know 10 to 12%. So robberies are up nearly 30%, rapes are up, grand larcenies are up significantly, auto thefts are up significantly, burglaries are up slightly. So this is a really concerning thing. And especially because in 2020, a lot of people mistakenly say that the crime spike was limited to homicides and shootings. Uh, they say that about New York, but they say that about the country writ large. And it's true that in the raw numbers, those are really the two main categories that saw significant upticks. But what people forget is that the pandemic really changed the routine activities of the general public. And by routine activities, this is you know, kind of a criminological turn of art that I'm sure you're aware of, but maybe your listeners are We spoke aren't. about it last time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just a, a quick overview, the routine activities theory of crime suggests that three things are necessary for crime to flourish. One is you need the presence of vulnerable targets. You need the presence of motivated offenders, and then you need an absence of capable guardians. And so the presence of vulnerable targets is really going to largely depend on the things that we all do every day, how often we leave the house, how much time we spend in public spaces, et cetera. That will leave us more or less vulnerable to certain types of crimes. And so there's a really fascinating paper done by a few criminologists uh, led by uh, Aaron Chalfin, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, 
that actually controlled for this shift. Pandemic caused all kinds of economic shutdowns, really changed how often people were going into the office, how often they were taking the subway. I mean, even still today, New York City is still on a good day seeing only about 60 or so percent of its pre-pandemic normal for subway ridership. And so when these criminologists controlled for the amount of time that people were spending in public spaces where they would be vulnerable to robberies and assaults, et cetera, what they found was actually a significant increase in risk of being victimized for those offenses for every, you know, I think it was like 100 hours spent in a public space. And so, you know, it's not exactly true that, you know, shootings and homicides were the only crimes that went up. When you control for the relevant factors, it's very clear that life got more dangerous in all sorts of ways. And we were more likely to be victimized in terms of different offense categories to a pretty significant degree. I mean, that paper, it should be noted, is limited to New York, Chicago, and, and LA, but it does show a pretty significant range of things increased risk from 10 to 30% of victimization risk going up in those three cities. And I don't think that there's any reason to think that those trends are unique to those three cities. And so these are the kind of nuances that lots of people haven't quite fully grappled with. And it's become a challenge to kind of get people to really think through these issues. And, you know, it's also understandable, right? I mean, the vast majority of the public shouldn't be expected to know all this, right? I mean, you know, it's understandable that they all just want to live their lives and they have jobs and families and responsibilities. It really is on people like me and including the folks that disagree with to kind of make their case in mainstream venues to the best of their ability and connect the dots in the way that they think is right. Yeah. And I think laymen looking at criminal statistics, we tend to look at things that are on the news and say, well, that's what changed. That must be it. But when we spoke last time, you talked about all um, these changes in law and criminal justice, sorry, criminal legal system policy <laughs> in New York, for instance, uh, bail reforms without uh, judges being able to consider recidivism risk, uh, decrease right. in uh, things like stop and frisk, police having the ability to do those things, election of progressive prosecutors, which led to decriminalization of public urination and open containers, default now in a, the parole process going to support parole rather than right. being for it, right to no act as well. So. Right. When roughly did those changes start to begin? Did they precede 2018? No, no. So bail reform and discovery reform, which were kind of two of the most really consequential criminal justice reforms and discovery reform, for those who don't know, is I feel like bail reform is kind of broadly understood by the public. But in a criminal case, the discovery process describes the process through which prosecutors and defense attorneys share evidence so that both sides are prepared to prosecute their cases or defend their cases adequately and advise their clients adequately as to whether or not to take a plea and if so, what kind of plea to take, etc. Now, in New York before 2019, which is when these laws were enacted, although they didn't go into effect until January of 2020, discovery was a process that was pretty closely tied to trial. And so, you know, that was really the limit. You had to pass certain things over to the defense before trial. And the argument was that people were being forced to plea bargain in the dark and they didn't have a great idea of what the evidence was. And so the answer to this problem was to create this new set of burdens for prosecutors to prosecute a criminal case where they would have to turn over all sorts of evidence within a very tight time frame, irrespective of whether the evidence was going to be used at trial, 
irrespective of its relevance to the criminal charges. And this really raised the transaction cost of prosecuting a criminal case. And so those two reforms went into effect in 2020. The Right to Know Act was something that we saw in 2017. The decline in stops and frisks was a result of litigation that came to a conclusion in 2014. But we also saw lots of relatively new trends. We had the progressive prosecutor movement where the Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance, who wasn't quite a progressive prosecutor, did start to adopt some of those policies toward the tail end of his tenure. The Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez, was elected on a progressive prosecutor platform, and his office was the first in New York City to adopt that default support of parole policy. But then in 2021, we saw the election of Alvin Bragg, who was a very staunch progressive prosecutor in Manhattan. And we saw the recent enactment in New York State of the Less is More Act, which is a parole reform bill that makes it much more difficult to hold people accountable for technical parole violations or to send them back to prison, even for new criminal charges. It creates all of these new burdens. And of course, there were lots of police reform bills passed in the wake of George Floyd's murder here in New York City and around the country. Things like bans on chokeholds, even though chokehold is really the wrong word, it, it's neck restraint, right? No, no police department is taught to choke suspects. There, right. you, know, you can use a neck restraint, which cuts off the blood flow. And the biggest risk there is that someone passes out and comes to a few seconds later, but it's a very effective grappling technique. But in New York City, the city council went even further and imposed what was called the diaphragm law, which was originally struck down by a trial court and then reinstated by an appellate court. And the diaphragm law actually criminalizes the placement of pressure on the back, neck, chest, or diaphragm of a suspect during the course of an arrest irrespective of whether it's done on purpose and irrespective of whether the suspect is actively resisting. And this has really kind of created some significant dangers that police officers face. And it it makes them, I think, A, a lot less willing to be proactive because every time they're proactive and they engage with someone, there's a risk that that engagement devolves to the point where force is going to be necessary. And then you're at pretty significant physical disadvantage, especially if the person that you're fighting is bigger. I don't think People in the general public quite fully appreciate how difficult it is to bring a grown man who does not want to be taken into custody and get him in handcuffs when he's fighting. I mean, even two, three people may not be enough to do that. And so a lot of these things have continued to change and move in the direction of leftist criminal justice policy, irrespective of the crime increase. So this has been kind of one of the more frustrating aspects of all of this. Okay, so some of these things predated 2020, and then there were some significant things that came into effect in 2020. So right there, I'm sure it's more complicated, always is, but that could account for the rise in 2018, 2019, some of these other factors coming in. And then in January 2020 was the big one. And so there's that plus the culmination of all the previous things that hit in 2020, which could account for that huge spike. But I also wondered about two things specifically. We saw reforms based on the optics of the George Floyd situation, how people reacted to that and how it affected things politically, along with, I suppose, a lot of other high profile incidents that happened. But I also wonder, too, can you account for something as um, a kind of macro criminologist? Can you account for like the mood in the country? Is that something that you can at all measure? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I think is very difficult to measure, but I do not think it's a coincidence that in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we had lots of just rioting, lots of demonization of the policing profession of the criminal justice system that did a couple of things. One, I think it made the general public much more open to relatively radical 
criminal justice reforms being passed in short order. I mean, the New York Times did an analysis that it published just uh, ahead of the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And in that time frame, since his murder up until April of the following year, I think it was like 30 states had passed more than 140 criminal justice reforms just in that time period. I mean, in June of 2020, so less than a month after George Floyd was murdered, Governor Cuomo, uh, or former Governor Cuomo here in New York, signed 10 police reform bills into law. The city council did a bunch of other stuff, including building out a workaround of qualified immunity, which is a legal defense that's available to agents of the state in certain kinds of circumstances that has been much criticized, although I think those criticisms are pretty misguided and get things pretty wrong. So I do think the mood had a couple of effects. One, it, it gave a kind of supercharge to a criminal justice reform movement that already was enjoying quite a bit of momentum. It really just opened up the Overton window. But it also, I think, sapped a lot of the motivation and the morale of people in the law enforcement world, cops, prosecutors. I mean, you have all these new burdens that you have to contend with, no new funding to contend with those burdens. You are being demonized in all sorts of ways, being screamed at in public. You, know, you look outside your window and you've got protesters holding signs saying, no cops, no KKK, no racist USA, and all of these mm -hmm. things. And that, I think, fed a kind of pullback on the part of law enforcement, especially policing. And we saw a significant decline in proactivity measures like stops and frisks beyond the decline that we saw post-2014. We saw a decline in arrests. Now, part of that is obviously due to the pandemic and the fact that people were just spending less and less time on the street. But even when you control for all that, I mean, we saw a massive uptick in early retirements in the NYPD. I mean, just this year, we've lost 4,000 officers. That is the highest number of officers that we've lost in a single year. Four sizes down pretty significantly. We had the defunding bill pass in New York City, which cut a billion dollars from the NYPD budget. Now, some of that was put back. But one thing that did happen was that they canceled two academy classes, which really delayed the backfilling process to sort of help balance out the effect of people leaving the force, not just altogether the profession, but moving to other departments and local suburbs where they're much less likely to be involved in a viral encounter or to other parts of the country where the feeling is the police are more appreciated. They get paid more. They're being offered bonuses. The public is just much more supportive of the institution. And so even if if we end up backfilling for every single officer that has left the force early or decided not to stay on past retirement eligibility for as long as they might otherwise have, we still have to contend with the brain drain problem, right? I mean, we are losing experience. So if you see a detective with 15 years of experience retire, you know, it's really not much constellation if you have a brand new cop who joins the force as a rookie. I mean, these are not the same thing. It's going to take quite a bit of time for that cop to be able to fill those shoes. And so these are just some of the challenges that I think have affected the mood. And that mood has, I think, manifested itself in different ways that have affected crime on the ground. One thing I noted, I have a friend who was involved in some cold case investigations. He wasn't a cop, but he did something pretty exceptional. I don't know if you've heard of the recent convictions with Richard Cottingham, the serial killer from the 70s. And yeah. there's like, a, there's like a, uh, six extra cases they closed. So I had a friend that was involved in that in like a historian capacity. It was fairly interesting. So he got to know a lot of the cops and he told me, he said, I was seeing departments shut down in front of my eyes. He was there when the cold case unit in New York was disbanded. Well, I don't know if it is yet or it's on its way, but it's on its way out, if not already out. 
Yeah, I don't think it's been disbanded, but my understanding is that the detective ranks have been hit hardest by the surge in early retirements, by the surge in resignations, which makes sense, right? Because you have officers at that point in their career, they're much more likely to have a gold shield. But yeah, no, I mean, this is a problem, right? I mean, I, I do think that there's something to be said for acknowledging that part of the strategy of criminal justice system critics police critics is that they don't like certain institutions and their approach is to essentially starve those institutions of resources. And over time, those institutions will become less effective. And then those shortfalls are then pointed to as evidence for why those institutions shouldn't be invested in in the first place, even though the decline in performance in 2021, in addition to the increase in crime, we saw a significant decrease in clearance rates. Now, part of that is explained by the pandemic insofar as you have lots of people wearing masks. And so even if they're caught on video, you know they're no longer identifiable. It's more difficult for witnesses to identify people who were masked up. You had lots fewer eyes on the street uh, as a result. Of, yeah, of course. So that certainly explains a good bit of it. But again, clearance rates haven't fully recovered. And I think a good bit of that is just a function of the disinvestment in the criminal justice system, which hasn't necessarily come in the form of explicit disinvestment. Like again, we did have the defunding bill of the NYPD, although you know not all of those defunding measures came to pass. But when you impose new burdens on these institutions without any additional funding for them to contend with those burdens, that is akin to a defunding. Right. I mean, you are giving them more work to do without any additional resources, which means they have to do more with less or do less. And unfortunately, reality often dictates the latter. And I think when people hear something like uh, defund the police, they're thinking there's going to be less cops like Derek Chauvin. They think of something like that. But think about the nature of institutions where they're going to most likely slash are things like cold cases, like these specialty units. The core of the model has to exist. They know that. (laughs) So it's all of the more specialty. I think that's right. But you're also going to see, right? I mean, if the goal of a defunding movement is to minimize the number of Derek Chauvin's, I think defunding is the worst way you could possibly go about that. And for the following reason, right? If you constrain the financial resources available to a department, what ends up happening is that the department has to make cuts. They have to cut corners, which means that in all likelihood, they are not going to be able to continue to invest in their workforce development, right? Which means you're going to see stagnation of pay levels, even when the cost of living is going up during a period of inflation that you know the United States is currently experiencing. What that means is that people with options, you know, potential recruits who have college degrees, who are highly psychologically stable, very high performing individuals, a job as a police officer is going to look increasingly less attractive. As you make the job less attractive, not just through things like financial constraints, but also through demonization of the profession, through making it more dangerous, right? We've seen an increase in the number of police officers shot and assaulted on the job. We've seen lots more protests, a lot more disrespect for the institution exhibited in all sorts of venues. What happens is, is that the best potential recruits start to choose alternative career paths. And then you actually see the average delta between the typical cop and the typical perp start to shrink. And so ironically, what you end up with are more Derek Chauvin's, right? I mean, lots of police departments around the country here have been significantly struggling with recruitment and retention. Now, these struggles have preceded 2020, but they've gotten significantly worse since. Now, 
the response in some departments has been to lower standards, lower educational requirement standards, lower test performance thresholds, get rid of things like tattoo policies or bans on recruits who have prior drug use patterns or prior misdemeanor records, et cetera. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is not a great thing. This is one of the greatest examples of getting what you pay for and what you don't pay for, which means that, you know, if what you want is better outcomes, right? I don't think it's a coincidence that things like use of force rates went down so much over the period in which the policing profession was professionalized, when it became a profession, right? It went from being a kind of blue collar city job that many people who didn't even have high school diplomas took because of the job security and whatever, to the kind of career that people would move across the country to do because they wanted to be part of an institution like the NYPD. And it became a profession. And so in 1971, when the New York City Police Department started keeping track, they shot over 220 people. They killed almost 100. You know, those numbers are down to like maybe a little over a dozen firearms discharges and suspect deaths in the single digits as a result of deadly uses of force. And I think that's a function of how that department was professionalized. We saw increases in clearance rates and decreases in crime. All of these things are going to get worse if you starve these institutions of the resources that they need. What about the salary of the police officers or people that working in some capacity in the police, has that been affected? Well, I think it's been affected in the sense that you're not going to see that number rise the way that you should with inflation where it is. We also saw, you know, among the other reforms passed is reform aiming to require New York City police officers to live within the city's five boroughs in order to take that job. Now, some might say that, well, this makes intuitive sense. We want them to be part of the communities that they're policing. But the reality is, is that in the suburbs, especially if you have a family, you can get a lot more for your money. New York City is not a cheap place to live. And so you're really kind of, it's almost like a pay cut, right? To say Mm -hmm. you don't have the option of living in this lower cost suburban enclave outside the city anymore, but we're not going to increase your pay despite imposing this new requirement, which is, I think, really significant and probably is behind some of the recruitment and retention troubles that the department is having. We also see something very similar with the prosecutors, right? I mean, the discovery reform bill that I mentioned earlier imposes significant new burdens that really amount to paperwork. Right. This is like very low level administrative stuff. You do not get paid particularly well as you know, a municipal prosecutor, even in New York City, right? Considering the cost of living and considering the sort of jobs that you would be able to get in private practice and big law if you, you know, graduate law school, right? I mean, you can go work for a big firm and yeah, you're gonna work 80 to 90 hours a week, but you're gonna make 200 grand a year, maybe like 160 to 180 grand a year to start, not including your bonuses, which will be in the significant five figures, right? But people take jobs as prosecutors because they know that in a few years, A, they'll be eligible for student loan forgiveness, but B, they will have acquired so much litigation experience that they would never be able to get in private practice that makes them more valuable to private law firms down the road, deeper into their careers. And so they make that investment, they make that sacrifice to do this kind of work, both out of a sense of duty and affect for public service, but also with the explicit acknowledgement that they are going to be able to do things that they otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to do. Now, the discovery reform cuts into that because now you are spending the vast majority of your time tracking down the notepads of the police officers that responded to the scene, watching and redacting body cam footage, which can take hours and hours and hours, even if you're not going to use that body cam footage. 
you know, tracking down all sorts of records and disciplinary histories and all of this stuff just to comply with these new discovery burdens. And what they're finding is you're just cutting into the time that you would otherwise spend getting the kind of legal experience that most people take that job to get. And so it becomes less attractive and it's almost like a pay cut, right? I mean, your pay is staying the same, but the level of experience that you are getting goes down, which makes the level of pay worth significantly less to you. Right. So Australian guy who sent me the email criticizing me saying that defund the police would result in less money for police officers. I wasn't wrong. <laughs> right. So COVID, we've talked about sort of on the side how COVID had some effects. Obviously, crime went up when controlled for other things in COVID. Is there any measure on how that might have affected people, particularly in a place like New York, where it's so crowded and condensed, people don't have large homes, particularly in the real urban areas of it? Do we have any data or anything really about how that affected people psychologically? Yeah, I mean, I think those analyses will come, but I think they're going to be very hard to do because even though COVID was a pretty big shock to the system, it was not the only shock to the system. As I mentioned, New York had pulled all of these policy levers that went into effect in 2020 and then further policy levers in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic that it's going to be really hard to disaggregate the effects of all of those things to single out what COVID is or isn't responsible for. But I do think COVID certainly changed the routine activities of people, how much time we were spending in public, how often we were commuting to work. A lot of people were working from home and so they weren't driving as much. And so cars were remaining on the street and not being watched as closely, which is one of the reasons why I think we saw such a big increase in car thefts, right? That cars became much more vulnerable to thefts. We saw a big uptick in the sort of gig economy, one as a result of the sort of economic impact of COVID, but also just as a result of the demand, right? More people were spending time at home. They weren't going shopping as much. They had lots of extra money because they weren't commuting. And so they were ordering Uber Eats a lot more often or seamless or whatever it is. And so a lot of these people were using their cars to make these deliveries. And so they double park outside a restaurant, leave their car running, someone would hop in and steal the car, right? right? So we've seen, I think, those kinds of effects. But the idea that COVID explains some significant part of the uptick in the biggest, most violent crimes like shootings and homicides, I think is misguided for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that COVID was an international phenomenon, right? It was a global phenomenon. It affected the entire world. We did not see every country around the world experience the kind of crime increases in violent crime that New York and the United States saw. Again, we had a 30% increase in homicides in the US. We didn't see a big increase in homicides in El Salvador or Mexico or the UK in 2020 or France or Germany. I mean, you know, Paris didn't have some big explosion in homicides on the order of what New York did. And so, you know, I think that is, you know, a big hurdle to the argument that COVID kind of explains this uptick. But, you know, again, it was also a national phenomenon, right? The entire United States experienced COVID. And yet, if you look at the concentration of crime, the geographic concentration of crime and the demographic concentration of crime, it didn't expand, right? The the Manhattan Institute did a study on crime concentration that looked at concentration of both crime generally and violent crime specifically in New York City in 2010, 2015, and 2020. In 2020, crime was actually very, very slightly more geographically concentrated than it was in those other two years, which is not what you would expect to see if, in fact, COVID was a crime driver because COVID affected the entire city. And so if COVID causes crime, we would expect that to be true 
outside of the places where crime is traditionally concentrated. We would expect to see some increase in crime along the extensive margin as opposed to the intensive margin. And the indicators are that we really saw the crime increase along the intensive margin, which is to say that all indicators are that the people who were generally committing crimes before COVID were just the same people committing crimes after COVID. They were just doing it more. Okay. So devil's advocate a bit. Could we make an argument, although this would be very hard to measure, could we make an argument that the increased strains brought on by COVID hitting that sort of criminal psychology, that when those things combine, you have a person undergoing strain who's already got a criminal psychology and the pressure plus their natural inclination to respond to stress or things in their life that way could also be part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think the pushback to that would be twofold. One is again, to point to other countries and jurisdictions that didn't see crime increases, even among their traditional crime committing populations. The other thing too, that I think is kind of worth mentioning. So say that one more time again, just to make sure. I I was saying it imperfectly. You know, when you're trying to find the word and it it evades the second word. Okay. I'm thinking these areas, they're probably pretty tightly packed, right? Got it. Okay. Right. So they're geographically dense. Plus, they've got criminals in there. Criminals respond to stress typically in an antisocial way. So could the combined effects there account for it somewhat? Yeah, yeah. So I I think that first argument still holds. The first response still holds. But the the second thing is, is, we have prior instances in which we've seen these sorts of stresses come into play in our history. And we did not see significant crime rises associated with that. So I'm thinking here of the Great Recession in the United States, you know, between 2007 and 2010, the unemployment rate in the US doubled. Massive economic stress, the economy took an enormous hit. The sort of economic impact was very similar. In fact, in a lot of ways, even worse than it was during COVID. I mean, you had the Occupy movement and all of this stuff grow out of it. Yet during that period of time, the United States saw the homicide rate decrease by 15%. New York City did not see an increase in crime during the Great Recession, which was arguably as, if not more, economically stressful than COVID was. Now, these stresses are different, right? You know, Maybe there is something unique about the stress caused by the potential threat of exposure to the pandemic, but we would also have expected that to be responded to in various ways, right? If you're really stressed about getting sick, you would, even if you were a criminal, start spending way less time in the street, right? There's way less time interacting with people. And that may not be what happened among these criminal populations. It's not clear to me that we saw the same kind of change in their routine activities. And so, you know, if that were true, I would have expected crime to go down among that population as a function of them being fearful of the pandemic. So that really just leaves the claustrophobic element, the effect of being shut in in a small space for such a long period of time. I imagine that couldn't have a positive effect. I imagine that can only have a negative effect, but I bet you there's no way we can measure that, right? Yeah, I doubt there's any way we can measure that. And also, I'm not sure how the mechanism looks. I mean, the idea that the natural response to that kind of claustrophobia and stress is to commit crime versus other things, right? Like, I think that that argument is stronger as applied to the increase in suicides or domestic violence or drug overdoses, et cetera. But homicide, I'm not sure I see a particularly clear uh, connection, at least outside the domestic violence context. Okay. So if we're doing a, a layer cake of causation, the large base is really the 
progressive policies that began before 2020 and things that happened after that all culminating. The second layer is the reaction to George Floyd and and other deaths that occurred in that time socially, how that fed in more to reform, but also perhaps the way people thought about and treated police officers and the way criminals thought about how they would be received for committing the crimes. And then COVID is just the thinnest slice on the top. I think that's right. I think that's right. Again, you know, not to say that COVID didn't have any effect whatsoever. I'm sure yeah. that it did. I mean, one thing it did is it basically shut down the courts in a lot of these places, which meant that people were spending more time on the street during pretrial periods mm-hmm. than they otherwise would have. They weren't receiving their sentences as quickly. Maybe by virtue of the constraints, individuals were getting better plea deals than they otherwise would have gotten. So I think there's certainly room to argue that the effect of COVID in that respect might have manifested in in some of these crime increases, but that's really just a broader argument about incapacitation. Okay. So switching tack a little bit, I spoke kind of off the cuff there about I'd received an email from a man from Australia and that's cool, man. You were very polite. Everything's good. He just said that I'd made a straw man, which I sort of did. I was speaking in the casual kind of way that you do on these things and pick sure. my words carefully. Although I was right that if you factor everything in, the police are making less money as individual employees too. Yeah. He criticized me because I had said that, you no, know, the police are going to be making less money. If anything, right. you want to pay them more. Defund the police actually means this. And so I went and I looked and he was right. It did, but it doesn't too. So there's a Wikipedia definition, right? Right. But it's not just that. And everyone doesn't just think that. And so I was pondering this and I went, you know, this is a kind of the issue with this popular criminology is it all has to be catered to like a bumper sticker, something that you can circulate online. And then just by broken telephone and other processes, the slogan is circulated and there's people chanting it and believing that they believe in it, but everyone's got a different definition. So it's almost like a jingle fallacy. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, you talk to 10 different people, even in the criminal justice policy space, and they'll give you 10 different definitions of what they think defund the police means, right? I mean, does it mean actually abolishing the department entirely by zeroing out its budget? Does it mean just, yeah. you know, cutting its budget in order to, you know, minimize the resources that it has to do the damage that people think that the institution does? Does it mean transferring those funds to other government functions, all with the aim of decreasing crime through alternatives to policing, whatever that? means, right? I mean, so, you know, lots of people have these varying definitions, which I think is is one of the major problems with this movement. But, you know, the, the idea that there exists some alternative to policing that can produce the same kind of public safety benefits that that institution has historically produced, I think is just something that the, that the available evidence doesn't support. You know, it may make people uncomfortable, right? And I can understand why in the wake of something as terrible as George Floyd's murder, people were second guessing the necessity or wisdom of having an institution like the police that has the power that can be abused in this way. But there is no public policy debate in which trade-offs are completely off the table, right? I mean, there is a cost to every lever that we pull. And One of the things that people did in the heat of the moment by sort of letting their passions drive their policy choices was that the second order effects, the unintended consequences of a lot of these policy levers, including defund measures, were not adequately considered. And, you know, I think what we're seeing now is the kind of seeds that have been sown in that regard. And that's coming in the form of crime increases, crime increases that almost entirely affected low-income minority communities. If you look at the homicide rates in 2020, the percentage increase is almost entirely concentrated among Black men. 
we saw a slight increase for white men, but you know, black men, Latino men, you know, saw the bulk of the increase. If you look at the share of homicides, it actually declined for whites, you know, of national homicides and Asians as well. So yeah, I mean, this is something that I hope people are starting to get a sense of now. But again, I mean, I just can't emphasize enough how hyper concentrated both geographically and demographically crime really is. I mean, last year in New York City, 97% of shooting victims were either Black or Latino. Almost all of them were males. Right now, of course, Black and Latino males don't constitute anywhere close to 97% of New York City's population. And so if this were any other thing, that kind of persistent and stark disparity where practically 100% of a really negative thing is experienced by these discrete communities that are traditionally disadvantaged in a multitude of ways that would draw the ire of your typical progressive. But we have not seen that disparity get the same type of attention. And I think the reason for that is, is that it would cause those progressives to have to grapple with the potential that the policy agenda that they have supported is behind some of this, right? I mean, you know, I, I ask some progressive people when I interact with them, and so, you know, I understand why you're uncomfortable about the fact that, as George Soros pointed out in his uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed a few months ago, that you know, black men in America are five times more likely to be incarcerated than white men. But why are you not as equally worked up by the fact that black men have a homicide victimization rate yeah. that is 10 times that of white men? That they have a homicide commission rate that is eight times that of white men. I mean, we, we cannot understand one disparity if we are going to look at it in a vacuum. We have to understand how other disparities in behavior might be affecting that. And when you do that, I think it really undercuts the sort of broad claim about racial discrimination that informs a lot of the criminal justice policy pushes that, that we've seen over the last few years. But I mean, the issue is, and you're completely correct as far as I can see, but the amount of words that you have to use to make that argument versus something like, you know, defund the police, Black Lives Matter is another one. I want to get into into those two. They're interesting because they represent two sides of a problem. They're not exactly the same because if you say to me, do Black Lives Matter? I go, well, yeah. Then I can get a little existential. Well, as much as any life matters, right, right. the blind cosmos that we inhabit, yes, they matter. That's a no-brainer. Okay, so you must support Black Lives Matter, which is this set of policies and this organizational structure. And you say, no, I don't support that at all. Then you don't think Black Lives Matter. Now, the opposite problem with defund the police. Do you think we should defund the police? No, absolutely not. I don't think we should defund the police. If anything needs more funding, it's probably the police. Then I'm not looking at their ideas. So maybe there are some things in the defund the police movement where, you know, I might disagree with eight of them, but there's two of them. Yeah, we can do some variation of that. Let's try that. The slogans in themselves, do you think they're intentionally designed this way? Sometimes I can be a bit of a conspiracist. Probably not. (laughs) The MO of a certain political class. Yeah, I think it's just the MO. I think it's also good marketing, right? I mean, if you are a public relations expert, fewer words, the better, right? You want things that are easily digestible, that are that roll off the tongue. This is how you brand, right? And this is a branding exercise in a lot of ways. I mean, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post a few weeks ago, you know, kind of a post-election, a post-midterm election breakdown. And one of the things I said was, look, I mean, you know, the Democratic Party had a hard time on the crime issue in part because they have spent the better part of the last decade sort of branding themselves as the party of reform, as the party 
that was animated by harsh critiques of the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system, as a lot of them like to put it increasingly. And so, you know, it's not at all crazy to me that, you know, we would see the slogans like Black Lives Matter and defund the police sort of come to take on the sort of rhetorical power that they have. You know, things have always worked that way. I mean, there's a reason that campaigns have long had slogans forward or yes, we can, or, you know, whatever it is, even if those slogans are incredibly vague and the people who end up chanting them don't even necessarily fully understand what's incorporated in the broader policy agendas that those slogans are operationalized to support. This is just a challenge in politics in general. I don't think it's unique to the criminal justice policy space. I'm sure that if we looked, we could find examples of conservatives doing the same thing. Back the um, yeah, back the blue. That's another one. I mean, you know, what does that mean? Does that include Derek Chauvin? Right. <laughs> um, right. Some of them, yeah, might say that. I was right. shocked to see some people defending him. I was like, Dude, yeah, don't do yeah. that. That's clearly yeah. wrong. Yeah. Now, I will yeah. say that that was one case in which every single cop I've spoken to about it has said in no uncertain terms that Chauvin was incredibly wrong, that that was a murder and that he deserved every day of prison that he got. I have not yet met any police who have tried to defend him. I've had seen some crazy people on Twitter try to defend him, but you know, there's crazy people on Twitter that will defend almost anything if you look hard enough, right? I mean, that place can be uh, interesting, but it can also be a cesspool of, of nuttiness. Well, there is that difference. I mean, we've got the Twitter era, which is, what, what would we say, like maybe 2015 and after. Yeah. And so sloganism, it rises to new levels uh, yeah. with like the shareability of, of Twitter. And so I was wondering, I prefer your ideas. I think they're more well thought through, but as part of what you do at the Manhattan Institute or anywhere else, or are you aware of other people doing this, trying to come up with slogans to encapsulate what you guys think that are easily digestible? Yeah, I mean, no, that's not something that you know we're really in the business of doing, and I'm not sure that there's a particularly good effort. I mean, that doesn't mean you know that we don't have marketing and, and public relations professionals that are trying to push out our work, and it's one of the reasons why I've appreciated the Manhattan Institute so much was because it prides itself, yes, on doing really good, high quality scholarship in the form of white papers, but we also prioritize writing op eds in major newspapers like the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, all of which I've published in, writing books for. Gen- general consumption, right? Not just through academic presses that are going to be yeah. 15 inches thick and that no one's really going to read, right? You $120. Yeah. Right, exactly. When I was promoting this book shortly after it launched, the same day I was on The Daily Show and I was on Tucker Carlson, right? I mean, like, mm. you know, these are the venues that you have to go into in order to reach people. And Twitter has certainly been a tool for us to do that. I mean, dropping threads and tweets that will add short bits of commentary to news stories and statistical reports and stuff. And, and, and that has certainly helped helped us expand our reach and grow an audience for this set of ideas. And the hope is, is that by engaging in these venues, we can help bring more attention to them. But at the end of the day, good public policy analysis is never going to lend itself to, you know, sort of sloganism. It's just, and and that's a challenge. It's an enduring challenge. And, it, you know, it's one that I think is a function of a cultural shift in society, right? I mean, you mentioned the Twitter era, right? I mean, Twitter, it's like you were limited to 140 characters at one point. I think now it's like yeah. 245 characters, whatever it is. So you, you've got to do things like YouTube and podcast circuits yeah. and stuff. And you know, <laughs> all of that I've done. And the hope is, is that you do enough of this work and you get into enough of these venues that you will find a way to have your voice reach people that you want to reach and that are persuadable and that you're doing it in a responsible way, right? At the end of the day, I don't measure success by how many Twitter followers I have. I want to convince people who are participating in public debates, who are participating in the democratic process, 
and who are participating in the policymaking process that my ideas, that the ideas of people who have inspired my work, you know, James Q. Wilson, George Kelling, John DeLulio, these criminologists that have done fantastic work in the past and currently, that there is a better solution out there. And hopefully they buy those arguments and operationalize them. And again, that comes with a good bit of responsibility, one that I don't think people always fully appreciate or internalize, but it's something that I do take seriously. I, mean, I just had a, a very short piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday it's about the kind of books that I read. And one of the things I said, like, look, you know, when you're in this space, it can be very fun to engage in policy debates. And I enjoy it and I thrive and I really do like the work that I do. But you have to remember that this is serious business, right? I mean, if I'm wrong mm-hmm. and policymakers listen to me and operationalize the ideas that I'm promulgating, I mean, that can be bad for their constituents. That's not lost on me. And so there's a responsibility that comes with that to think through the ideas very carefully, to be sort of circumspect and sober in the language that you use in public spaces. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I probably don't have 100,000 Twitter followers. I'm probably more careful than the marketing professional may say is ideal to grow an audience. But I think that's always been the case, right? I mean, I forget who, who said it, but it's much easier for a lie to get halfway around the world before the truth has an opportunity to put its pants on in the morning. I think it was Megan, yeah. but I'm not sure. That's true in large part because people who are not particularly concerned with the nuances of truth are much more willing to sloganeer and, and make things digestible. And again, for very understandable reasons, the public is susceptible to that. Yeah. There's like scholars who have to learn to become pundits so that they can get their knowledge across. But then there's other people who are pundits who are learning to become better pundits and they don't have to do all that other work. Right, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So we're always on our back foot. <laughs> I wanted to also get into, so I relocated to the UK living there and I was looking for people to come on the podcast and I kept meeting defense lawyers by some happenstance. So I got into telling them a lot of stuff I thought about since I spoke to yourself and John, particularly John regarding this issue, the death penalty. And in mm. the UK, they've been letting out some people and they do it in the USA too. It just, Somehow it's more local, so it sneaks out. But they've been letting uh, out people who are repeat sexual murderers, like I would call them serial killers. And Mm. I just don't see any argument for it. And so as I was arriving there, they were just letting one out. And then they let out another one. And so I turned around to these defense lawyers, like, what is the argument for this? This is a serial sex murderer. This is ridiculous. And the response that I got was, well, we can't keep them in prison forever. Why not? (laughs) Because that's just punishing them and that's bad or something. (laughs) If we're going to just do that, then we should kill them. So they're basically like capital punishment, which they don't believe in. And therefore, because I don't believe in capital punishment, the only reason to keep someone detained would be to rehabilitate them and eventually let them out someday. Yeah, well, I mean, I obviously disagree. I mean, this is, I think, a broader trend in debates about criminal justice policy, which is people sort of cabin their arguments to one or two penological justifications for incarceration, but there are multiple. And to me, the most important one is incapacitation, right? The best reason to keep someone incarcerated is not to mete out punishment or to rehabilitate them, because I one, I don't think we even really know how to rehabilitate reliably, let alone how to do it at scale or for a population that is as pathological as a serial sex murderer might be, but it's to protect the public from the crimes that these people would otherwise commit if they were out and about, right? I mean, as you were sort of setting that question up, I was thinking of a, a case out of New York recently of a person named Marceline Harvey, who was recently indicted for murder after being paroled in 2019. 
They were paroled in 2019 after serving a significant number of years in prison for a murder committed in the 1980s, which was committed after serving a significant number of years in prison for a murder that was committed Mm -hmm. in the 1960s. And so this person was 83 years old at the time of this most recent murder that they were charged with. And there was a sexual element to this. There was a rape charge back in the 1960s. This person has transitioned from male to female, I believe, in terms of how they identify and change their name and all this stuff. But the idea that there does not exist a subpopulation of criminal offenders who are incorrigible, which is to say that they pose a risk of reoffense that is so great as to make the decision to release them unjustifiable on moral grounds and on public policy grounds. And I think that that is really one of the biggest shortfalls of the progressive criminal justice reform movement that I suspect a lot of these defense attorneys you spoke to belong to and identify with. What I think we have really failed to do in large part, and and the kinds of injustices that inspire the title of my book are a function of this, is that we have failed as a society, and I think this applies to Western society more broadly, not just the US, to set and enforce limits with respect to how many bites at the apple somebody gets before we say enough. We can no longer trust you with freedom. And we have a responsibility to the good people in our society, the potential victims, to protect them from you by incapacitating you and extracting you from society. That really does boggle my mind that so many people don't have the stomach for that. The question that I asked was, why is it that you don't have the stomach for that, but you have the stomach for taking the kinds of risks that the data tell us we are clearly taking, right? I mean, every time you read about a homicide, right, there was a terrible murder committed here in New York City just recently, and it made headlines across the city, really across the state of a 16-year-old girl. And the prime suspect who was just arrested and charged with murder was apparently her boyfriend, an 18-year-old kid. He had at least six prior robbery arrests and was on probation for robbery. So here's someone who, even at this young age, has illustrated pretty clearly that at least for the foreseeable future, he has no intention of abiding by society's rules. Society had all the legal justification that it needed to take this person out of society for some significant period of time and incarcerate him, but instead gave him a sentence of probation. And now it looks like a girl is dead as a result. Now, obviously this person's presumed innocent until proven guilty by a jury of his peers, but or until he pleads guilty. But this is exactly the kind of thing. And I opened my book with the story of a woman named Brittany Hill, who was murdered in Chicago. And I might've told this story on the podcast last time because Holding it was one of the baby. ones- yeah. Exactly. I mean, this is one of the things that really inspired me to write the book with the intensity and speed that I did. One of the people charged with her murder had nine prior felony convictions, nine, including one for second degree murder, right? This is someone that we had all the justification in the world for keeping him in prison for the rest of his natural life. And instead he was out on the street before he was 40. And I think he was out on parole and you know, now a, a woman is dead and a baby is motherless. And these are the kinds of chances we're taking. It's as if you go into a casino, sit at the roulette table and gamble with the 401k of the guy next to you. I will just never for the life of me, and maybe this is sort of the key difference and dispositions that sort of account for the progressive and or conservative orientation of people in the criminal justice policy spaces. But I will never for the life of me be able to understand how someone is uncomfortable with sending a repeat felony offender to prison for some significant period of time, I'm talking decades, Mm. if not for life, but they are comfortable rolling the dice with the lives of people who are going to be stuck living in the communities that see the bulk of the violent crime. Where we went next with the thought experiment, though, was he said, well, 
obviously they've made the determination that this serial killer can be let out. And I'm with you. I don't think we can rehabilitate at that level, not with any degree of certainty. But nevertheless, the professionals have made that determination about that individual. He's like, so now that they've done that, and it's been determined this person won't offend again, is it okay to let them out? And I said, no. But then I had to think more about it. And so this is what I came up with. I'd like to run it by you. Tell me if anyone else has ever come up with this, your thoughts on it. But as a nation of people or a community, we deserve to know that a person who's done that sort of thing cannot be free in our society. It's not just between the victim and the perpetrator. I think it's wrong to turn around to a little kid and say, yes, that person raped and tortured a little kid just like you. But scientists have said that he's okay, so we let him out now. There's something that does to a society having to psychologically digest that. Yeah. And it's something that I don't think society by and large supports if you ask them, right? I mean, you know, there's some survey data out there that does show broad support for criminal justice reform, but those questions are very vaguely framed. And there are other better surveys that when they dig into the meat and potatoes of what this actually involves, you see that level of support go through the floor, right? It was a morning consult and Vox poll that was, I think, in 2016, looking at, you know, decarceration support and ask people, you know, do you support criminal justice reform? Yes. Okay, great. you support releasing people who've been convicted of violent felonies? Vast majority say no. Guess what? That's the vast majority of people in prison today in the United States, right? Do you support releasing people who are very likely to reoffend, even if they were convicted of nonviolent offenses? Vast majority of people say no. Well, look at the recidivism rates in our country, about 80 to 83% over 10 years. That's pretty darn likely to reoffend and describes the vast majority of people in prison. The typical state prisoner in the United States has between 10 and 12 prior arrests and five and six prior convictions. These are, are pretty chronic offenders who are also well within the age range to continue to reoffend in the future, even for the population of 65 and over. That population recidivates at a rate of 40% if you define recidivism as a new arrest for a new offense. So this is something that I do think ultimately affects the psychology of society because our sort of social mores around these things haven't really changed. Our willingness to engage in punitive responses to criminal conduct hasn't really changed. What's changed is that we have a very loud, very effective advocacy class that has a lot of power in terms of moving the needle on policy. But I think that when you see this, you're going to start to see exactly what we saw during the really high crime time in the 1970s and 80s, which is suburbanization, Right, People who are uncomfortable with the level of risk that they perceive in the cities that they live in will insulate themselves if they have the means to do that. And one of the ways they do that is by moving out of cities and into suburbs. And we've seen a lot of that already, especially since the pandemic brought about this kind of new culture of remote work where people no longer need to be in city centers in order to do their jobs. It's also going to manifest itself in things like private police departments and more gated communities and sort of people changing their routine activities, how much time they spend in public spaces, how much they start to order groceries or things that they otherwise would have made a run to the store for, et cetera. I mean, people take the subway less, they take Ubers more, they start to drive more. All of these things are going to be manifested in some way or another. And I don't think it's healthy. I also don't think it's healthy for people to sort of frame these debates as you mentioned, as a sort of struggle between victims and perpetrators, right? I mean, communities are harmed by criminal offenses beyond just the immediate victim of that criminal offense, right? I mean, if, if there is a shooting, Right, there are studies showing that people who live or homicide, that high school kids who live within a certain radius of a homicide, even if they weren't victimized and didn't know the victim, 
that if you live within the radius, a certain radius of that homicide, you will perform statistically significantly worse on a standardized test than your classmates who live in the same community, but outside that radius, who have the same sort of demographic backgrounds, et cetera, but who live outside the radius and they will perform better than you. And it's just simply a function of the psychological impact of knowing that that crime occurred so close to you. And, you know, this is kind of a sort of broader application of the broken windows theory, which kind of made the same argument, which is that one of the ways that we process exposure to disorder and crime is to internalize a sense of vulnerability that changes the way that we behave. An interesting fact that I came across after I spoke with you, as I I spoke to Dr. John Liebert, who did some work on the Atlanta child murders case. And he told me of a study they'd done that showed that in Atlanta, when the children learned that there was a sexual serial killer among them, that their levels of stress didn't actually rise because they were already elevated to that much stress in their daily lives anyway, that the appearance of this unique new predator didn't even factor in. But what they also found was that those same stress levels were in communities that didn't have the child predator. And it was just linked to having to live in these violent environments. And there's, there was also some historical part of it too, coming out of Jim Crow and all yeah. that. Can't overlook that. But they are existing in such a state of agitation I mean, cortisol levels must be through the roof. Yeah. And I do think that that's part of the cycle that we see in the crime data, right? I mean, lots of people who are opposed to incarceration like to make the argument that incarceration is criminogenic. And I think that's true for a small subpopulation of offenders. But you know what else is criminogenic? Crime. Yeah, (laughs) Exposure to crime. And the stress levels of living in a high crime community. Also, the sort of retaliatory cycle that certain crimes can kick off and get people involved in a criminal world that they wouldn't have otherwise been involved with as a a result of an offense being committed and people lacking faith in the system, that it's going to adequately respond to that. I don't want to live in a world in which the criminal justice system is replaced with vigilante violence. And make no mistake, it will be right? Policing will always happen. It just may not always be done by police, but policing will always happen, right? The question is, do you want more Bernie Getzes or do you want more NYPD? I choose the latter. What I think is also interesting is that those people politically aligned with this idea that words are violence or we need a safe (laughs) space on campus. So words are violence because they can affect you just by hearing them, but hearing that someone was murdered on your street, it doesn't arise to the same level. It's bizarre. Right, right. We should exclude someone from a college campus because they might give a speech that uh, does some kind of psychological harm to the students there. But we shouldn't protect vulnerable communities from a 15-time felon who is likely to kill somebody. How you square that circle, I don't know. Well, baffling. We'll leave it at that. Raphael, thanks for coming on the show. Once again, your book is Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Anything else you want to plug before we part ways again? No, no. I mean, I really appreciate you having me back on the show. It's always great to talk to you. I do hope that your listeners found the conversation helpful and that they'll give the book a read. Awesome. So maybe we'll check in in what, two more years, see how things are going. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Maybe I'll have another book by then. (laughs) Yes, uh, more books the better. Closing down the dive bar, everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.